Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. I really hope you enjoyed this week's guest. This week's guest is Brian Goodwin. He is the president and CEO of McCrell, which is an organization that's done amazing work with research over a number of years. And as you hear him talk, you'll hear us get excited about the same research and the same books. And what I love about the approach that he takes to education in general is that it's not, there's the science of teaching, there's the art of teaching, and the art is joyful, and the science is just the techniques and the things that we do, but there is joy in a learning experience, and there's science that backs that up. So it's not that there's a relational piece and there's a technical piece, it's that there's this joy, joyful synergy of the techniques and the science that work really well with the art and the relationship that is so integral to our profession. Today, we're here with Brian Goodwin, a good friend of the Center for School Leadership here at Baylor and a longtime educator. He is the president and CEO of McCrell. He's published over 10 books. So it's always fun to talk to another educator and someone who's written far more than I have. So, Brian, uh, welcome to my office slash podcast <laughs> studio. <laughs> it's great to be back. I'm a Baylor alum, too, so it's always fun to be that back. Is... And I've been listening to the podcast a long time. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's the first time anyone said that, Brian. So, oh, but that's great to hear. So, give us a little bit of your background. So, Baylor grad, you mm-hmm. come out of undergrad. What drew you into education? And give us a little of your uh, background and what brought you to this point. Yeah, I did. I don't think I thought I was going to go into education. I was, I was was an English major here at Baylor. I took every writing course I could find. But I went to grad school and I started teaching freshman composition and then I taught freshman speech. And it was, I'd always kind of wanted to do something international. So um, I was actually a transfer to UVA. I was there for my master's and I just applied up and down the Caribbean chain for jobs. And I got one one day and that was pretty cool. So I became um, a classroom teacher, high school teacher. Um, and really trying to learn on the job. You know, I had a master's, but I did not have a lot of pedagogy in my background. That's Yeah, that's good. Now, where was your first job at? So, St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh, yeah. hey, that's Tough not a place. I was yeah. going to say, not a bad place to serve. No, it wasn't bad, yeah. And how long were you at St. Croix? I was St. there Croy? a couple of years. And then, okay. actually, there, I became a journalist. So, while okay. I, was, I was teaching, I started moonlighting. It started because I was coaching sports. I know you were a coach yourself, yes. John, right? So, yeah. we were a tiny, tiny school, so we were never getting the newspapers. So, I'd write these little articles about our sports teams. A little biased, I know. Um, but they got in the paper. And so, then a job came up for a real sports writer. So I was part-time sports writer, full-time teacher. And then I became a full-time journalist and a part-time teacher at Penn State. I was teaching um, adjunct. So, and then then got to McCrell about 25 years ago now. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize you've been at McCrell for 25 oh, yeah, years. Yeah. Okay. Quarter century. That's Oh, that's a nice way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, you know, I think maybe you might have been then the beginning of hard knocks and these behind the scenes uh, things about sports teams. You were already doing it as a member of the sports team, doing all the journalism. So, (laughs) you just need a cut of that revenue and you'd be good. So, your last couple books, I have a couple of them in my office, thanks to you. Uh, The new classroom instruction that works, Mm -hmm. which built on a 
huge bestseller that Marzano wrote. Yep. What year did that one come out? It was originally, it's actually, I had nothing to do with it when I first got to McCrell. So I think it was 2000 that that okay. first came out. Yeah. Okay. Very yeah. good. And then that's building on learning that sticks a brain based model for K-12 instructional design and delivery. And uh, we were just discussing this. And as I was looking through the book, I, I found it fascinating. You have the six phases mm -hmm. of learning and we've been talking about through the center and through a lot of my work, what real engagement yeah. looks like. And the six phases seem like there's some nice overlap. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the six phases yep. and where you see that working out in practice. Because what I love about your books is at the back, there's great research yeah. that undergirds all of it. And so you back it all up with the research, but you make the writing very accessible. So talk to us a little about those six phases. Yeah, it really, John, came out, out of also thinking about like the second edition of classroom instruction that works and and seeing when teachers were trying to apply that. And I think what we were finding, and I'm sure you've seen this, the, the breakthrough moment for teachers is when they become intentional. When now I know why I'm doing what I'm doing, yeah. or why this is working. And so we started with learning that sticks. We said we wanted to figure out what does cognitive science say about how learning works? And so it's not like a neuroscience thing. It's where we've known this stuff for a long time about how learning actually happens. And so the six phase learning model that then is like undergirds the new classroom instruction that works starts with this. Like if you're going to learn something, initially you have to become interested in it. There's right. kind of no escaping that, right? It's curiosity. It's like, yeah, we, we occasionally learn things we're not trying to learn, but that's usually not very, very joyful, right? Or we don't want to learn, right? So that's the first phase. And I know you talk a lot about curiosity yeah. and the, the power of that. And so, and we know that because actually our brains are taking way more information than we can possibly process. So we have to focus on something. And what gets us interested is anything that's novel, different, mm -hmm. out of the ordinary, mm -hmm. or that's mysterious, all these things. So that's, that's the first phase. The second phase then is committing to learning because learning is always effort, right? Mm. Um, and our brains want to power down. Daniel Kahneman makes that point, yep. right? Fast thinking, slow thinking brains. Our brains want to go back to fast thinking, just the easy stuff. So at some point we have to commit to learning and that's, that is kind of goal setting, although maybe early on it's habits first and then goals. Right. Right. Um, but at some point, if we're going to learn something, we have to tell our brains, say, this is important enough to keep paying attention. It's when I'm back on Baylor campus, I remember all those years as an undergrad, like you had to tell yourself, this is important. I need to learn this and how do I, mm -hmm. how do I stay focused? So, yeah, those first two phases are key. And I think sometimes as educators, we jump, past those yeah. <laughs> and if you don't have people mentally engaged wanting to learn and then committed to that learning it doesn't really matter what else you do yeah so i worked with pre-service teachers for years and i said hey if you have to spend 90 percent of your lesson convincing students that this matters and this is something they should be engaged in then that's what you have to do yeah. obviously that's not ideal for maximizing <laughs> depth but if you jump to now i'm just going to cover content right None of it matters. It's like the train pulls out of the station. They're not on it, right? But That's you're right. still going. You're teaching. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I make this comment too, and it, this may sound shocking, but yeah. we didn't find any research that said learning learning objectives are important. Like, mm. What? You know. Oh. But why that is, is like, it doesn't matter if you've got the learning objective on the board if the kids <laughs> haven't turned that into a goal for themselves. Right. right? I, my finding with that is, is that learning target being on the board is only important if you have a really ineffective teacher there, mm -hmm. because then at least the kids know what they're supposed to be learning. <laughs> but right. with an effective educator, what the students should be doing should be front and center, and it shouldn't 
need to be written on the board. Right. It would be redundant right. for kids. And so, uh, that's the only place I've seen where that's super beneficial. So, when principals do walkthroughs and they're checking, oh, the learning target's on the board. Well, if you walk in that room and you can't tell what the point of the learning is, regardless of whether it's on the right. board or not, we've got big problems. So, I, I love that finding. And that doesn't surprise me because that alone doesn't do much to elevate it. It's not bad. It's necessary, but not yeah. sufficient. That's right. Maybe that, I put that's it. a yeah. good way of putting I've it. also been doing the same walkthroughs yeah. for principals and they'll say, you know that learning target on the board? That was up there three weeks ago too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. No, that's good. Yeah, that's that's depressing. Yeah. Uh, then the next four phases. Yeah. So then we kind of get into like short-term working memory and like and then there's a lot of research on that that we know that are Short-term working memory is both short-term, we're talking five to 20 minutes. We, our brains time out usually after about five minutes or 10 minutes. That's true for adults. I do enough adult learning. I know you do too. Like after yeah. 10 minutes, if I've been talking too long, I don't have to look at my watch. I know I've gone too long, right? Right. Um, we also know we can only juggle so many things in our heads at once. We also know there's this idea of dual coding that we, we take in information better when it's visual and verbal at the same time. So yeah. as it turns out, we are all visual learners. Um, so it's um, so one drawback to the podcast. <laughs> true, sorry, you have to picture this in your head, yeah. Right. Um, so the third phase of learning is focus on new knowledge. And that, that there is an element of direct instruction. That, that direct instruction is not bad, yeah. but just in like 10 minute kind of episodes. And then the next piece is uh, make sense of learning. So we need to consolidate learning. I know you've got that yeah. as one of your, your phases in the six or the four uh, C's that you yeah. talk about. And that really is just, that's how we learn. Our brains are not filing cabinets, they're neural networks, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to connect ideas, prior knowledge with new knowledge, cluster, mm -hmm. categorize, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the four C's that you're referring to, you know, I, I have simplified it in a way that just, it's like, hey, the whole point of the book just teaching was to help educators see that regardless of how they're delivering education, over the last three years, these are the things that matter. So, you've got to have engaging content. Mm -hmm. That means kids have to be engaged in it. So, those are your, your first two phases. And then this consolidation piece, they have to have time to assimilate yeah. this new knowledge and make meaning and create those pathways. And that means they have to struggle. Yeah. And so, you have to give them time to productively struggle with the material, which is what I love about your phases, which then gets into collaboration. Oh, and totally. so, yeah. that that's key and you definitely see that in the phases. So, uh, where do your phases wrap up and what, what do you see? What what do you get most excited about about the phases you see them in practice yeah so the fifth phase then is practice and reflect and that, yeah. that goes back to tons of cognitive science that right. the only way we learn something is through repetition myelination right we mm -hmm. the more we repeat a memory the more we we form those myelin connections in our brains but then the most important phase is extend and apply and mm -hmm. we know that actually kids forget most of what they learn in the classroom what is it, like 90 percent within yeah. 30 days yeah until we can take knowledge and apply it and do something with it, you talk about creation, yeah. filling your C's, right? Yeah. That's where, now if I've done something with that knowledge and we talk about it, it's not just hands-on learning, it's hands-on and minds-on. Yeah. yeah. Now if I've done that, I've formed multiple neural connections with that new knowledge and it's gonna stick better. So that's the one I'm most excited about. I also think it's the one that's probably most often absent yeah. in a lot of classrooms. Teachers are like, I don't have time. I got a pacing guide, I gotta get, get to the end of the semester and but meanwhile the kids are forgetting most of what they're learning yes and that content creation where they're creating things and mm -hmm. doing things with them that's when teaching gets really interesting yeah. because those four c's are the in the engagement phase of feedback engagement and well-being those are critical but when you have kids really deeply engaged in creating and synthesizing and applying in new ways 
that's when it's fun to get yeah. feedback. Right. Teaching that's when the joy comes back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Teaching becomes like an apprenticeship and yeah. you see them getting better and they see themselves getting better at these things. It's why, again, there's a little bias for educators in this because we know our stuff really well because we teach it. And, you know, if you really want to learn something, force yourself to teach it. Yeah. And we don't give our kids a chance to do that because we're in too big a hurry to cover surface level knowledge and right. say, hey, we did it. Right. And right now there's a lot of this, uh, don't have to master it, just expose and then spiral. I'm like, well, no, if we're just constantly exposing kids and never assessing them to see if they have gained any level of mastery, then it's just mile wide inch right, deep stuff right. that we've been doing in the u.s for way too long and far better to remember a few things and have forgotten right. a ton of things right? that's right so, yeah. that's right yeah. and not just remember them but have done something with exactly. them and that's how you then remember them and can use them in meaningful ways so i, I think learning that sticks you hit that really hard yeah. which that was 2020 that one came out yeah, exactly yeah yep so great book so the other piece that i love about your books and what we've talked about is that even though they're really heavily research-based research and the science of learning is not opposed to joyful oh, learning yeah in fact it is what joyful learning is because good learning is joyful so how do you see that overlap how do you see yeah. that connection between the science of teaching and the science of learning and the joy that we love to talk about right. that goes on I, in the classroom and you're right i mean i think sometimes research feels like uh, one more thing I should do or I'm not doing or like being told you should eat kale salad or go to spinning <laughs> right, class or something right, like that. Right. That's not very exciting. Right. But the whole idea is if we can design learning that better reflects how our kids' brains work, it's easier for them. It's more joyful for them. And it's actually easier for us too, right? It's the, it's the Robin Jackson idea. Never work harder than your students. If I can expose, put myself in my kids in conditions where they're learning, now they're doing the work and I'm not trying to force it into their brains. And so, for me, that, that is the, the takeaway. My daughter's a Baylor grad also, but nice. she's teaching second grade. And I told her there's never been a better time to be a teacher That's right. than today because we know more about how this works, about how the mm -hmm. brain works, about a really effective strategies that actually make it easier for you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, all, you've seen when you turn it over to kids, it's like amazing. The room lights up mm -hmm. and that's what we're trying to do. Right. So it's somewhat counterintuitive to say that you find the joy in teaching when you make it not about you. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really what it is. You know, that's a really big point too, that um, we find this huge shift when we go from planning for teaching to planning for learning. That's right. right. Now yeah. I'm thinking about what are my kids going to be doing? It's yeah. not what am I doing? I got my learning objective. I'm going to teach something. The kids will do something. No, what do I want to have? I want the light bulb to go up. I want them to become interested, right? I want them to see... We also borrow a Madison Avenue term, the with them, the what's in it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So what's in it for me? Why am I learning this? If kids get that, mm -hmm. then then all of a sudden they take off and we mm -hmm. don't have to push them into it. Yeah. James Nottingham uses the with them thing, the what's yeah. in it for me as well. And then he also has the waggle. Oh, what's, what's a good one look like? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, you, you just need to see, hey, what am I shooting for? Yeah. That, we talk about success criteria. That's yes. what that is, right? That That's, is. Uh, I like yeah. waggle. I'm going to use that. Yes. Uh, yeah. the, the waggle. I just like that acronym. But in uh, how how many years into teaching is your daughter? She's a third year of teaching now. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's a critical year. Yeah. It's Be an inflection point. Yes. Right. And has she been in the same grade level for She's all three? Second grade, two different schools now. Okay. But one second. California, one Alabama. So, okay. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a shift, but I felt like it was my third year where I started to become aware enough of my students because I was less focused on me because I wasn't just trying to get through my lesson yeah, plan where yeah. I was worried about what's, what are the questions I'm asking? What am I doing? Where I had enough cognitive space yeah. 
to focus on individuals in class and teaching all of a sudden it was like this is i loved it my first couple right. of years but it was more of a performance right than it was actual teaching you're probably going home exhausted every day like right. i've just stood in front of the room yeah no i think you're right and i think it is that uh, it's the, it, for me it's like the, it, you see that in all kinds of professions but think about like the difference between a rookie quarterback and a veteran quarterback that's right we're at baylor we can talk about football right yeah and maybe not this year <laughs> not but yes but you know it's like the the veteran quarterback can see what the defense is doing and change things and it's the same thing a veteran teacher or one who's gotten past the novice period right no. now like i'm seeing my kids and like oh this is not working i'm going to shift things up or i need to slow down or i need to speed up right so that is that is always that inflection point, I think. That's a good, I haven't ever used that analogy specifically for this, but it is when you see the great quarterbacks go through their reads mm -hmm. where the first option's not open and they go through three or four reads within two to three seconds. Yeah. And good educators are doing that all the time. Right. They're constantly surveying the room and they're seeing who's they're connecting with, who they're not, and they're moving to their next strategy. Yeah. Just like a good quarterback is doing that where in a beginning quarterback, if that first read's not open, they're getting sacked, right. they're throwing an interception, right. it's an incomplete pass. And I think I had a lot of those as a beginning <laughs> teacher <laughs> where Ooh, it's yeah. like, oh, and in my first book, which was titled The Novice Advantage. Which I love, by the way. Well, <laughs> yeah, it does talk about the, there are a few advantages to being new. There are a lot of disadvantages, but how do you lean into constantly seeing things with new eyes? Because I feel like something, some of the things that have happened in education over the last, I've been in now 28 years, made education and teaching specifically seem really oppressive and hard yeah, yeah so as you look ahead what gives you pause as you look at the landscape for educators right now what are you concerned about as you look at it because you're all over the country yeah. you're with a lot of different schools and school leaders what makes you concerned right yeah now? i think it's teacher burnout teacher fatigue um and it's partly it predates the pandemic and right I, i've written about this too we spent 25 years of very top down High stakes accountability, which I know it started at a good point. Like we wanted to catch people's attention on achievement gaps, hugely important. But then it turned into test scores and, you know, basically shaming and blaming teachers. And so we, we brought, and we also know that it was all based on behaviorist, uh, you know, psychology, mm -hmm. right? And we know that extrinsic rewards start to, start to fade, right? And so I think there was a lot, a lack of intrinsic motivation for teachers. Then we went to the pandemic and we kind of amplified the things that weren't working. We took what wasn't working in, in person and put it online. It got even worse. So that's my concern is that how do we how do we help people understand this is a great job. This is a great not job. It's a great profession, right? Mm -hmm. That we should all be wanting to go into because you make the point. It's the profession that makes all other professions possible. Mm -hmm. I talk about like how many other professions get to say I change I change people's lives every day. That's what mm -hmm. I'm doing. Mm -hmm. No, and I think right now it feels like we're not seeing evidence of that life change in classrooms a lot but i've been all over the world in the last year and i've been in classrooms where you see these glimmers of, mm -hmm. of light yeah. as you see kids uh i had a teaching friend that referred to teaching as the spark between souls that occurs like between yeah. teachers and students you catch glimpses of that and sometimes it's easier to be the person outside looking in than yeah. the person in it every day because you're so close to it you almost can't see the forest for the trees yeah. that are yeah. there uh, so what makes you most optimistic given i totally agree teacher yeah. burnout educator burnout administrator burnout I, I say administrators are doing a terrible job of selling 
te- uh, administration to teachers, and teachers yep. are doing a terrible job of selling teaching to their students because yeah. the jobs look miserable right, right. now. Right. Who would want to go into this yeah. profession? I'm glad my daughter did because I think she saw that there's so many amazing things you can do. Here's what gives me hope. And yeah. I, I've had the chance also, like you said, to see going all over the world. Yeah. I've seen amazing things happening like in Melbourne, Australia, where they focused on, there's the Northern Metropolitan Regional District, 80,000 students, and they were all the same kind of problems. This is pre-pandemic, losing kids, schools were closing. And they said, we're going to focus on three things, literacy and numeracy, sure, but curiosity, right? Mm. And then I, I've been to schools where the teachers come together, they create these afternoon investigations. So the, the morning is still focused on the foundational reading and math. Afternoon is when they come and they get to do curiosity experiments or investigations. Um, and you see the kids come in from recess at lunch and they're excited because now this is fun. And I've we've been working in Hawaii where they're creating, it's called Aina-based learning, it's place-based learning, but the land has a special significance in Hawaii, right? right? And it's about restoring culture, language, um, and the ecology of Hawaii, understanding like the Polynesian navigators, how they got across the ocean. And that's fun to see how kids are lighting up because they now it's the extension application. It's mm-hmm. the creation. It's I get to see why science yeah. is important or how math actually helps me get across the open ocean, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I, I've seen enough places where there are these glimmers, these bright spots. And I think there's also... A sense that we need something different. Yeah. We, we've got to we got to try some new things, and why not go back to how our brains work? Mm. <laughs> yeah, shocking. <laughs> Let's think about how we're created and lean into totally. that. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. If you ever need me or any listeners to go with you to Hawaii <laughs> and see that place based learning, where we're welcome. Yeah, we're, we're, it is magical. We so, would be yeah. happy to do that. Yeah. I will say one thing that was encouraging. I I did I. I mentioned to you before we jumped on that I had a couple hours with John Hattie. We mm-hmm. were sitting in Brisbane, uh, the Gold Coast yeah. of Australia. And he said this, and it may be tied to what you just said about pre-pandemic situations in Australia. Teaching there is still a top three respected profession yeah. in Australia. And they're not dealing with, I'm sure they have some teacher turnover, but they're not dealing with anywhere near to the levels I'm seeing in the UK and yeah. Canada and the US where Teachers are turning over at higher levels. Their retention rates are actually That's quite great. high That's in great. Australia. So I'm wondering if what you said about what was going on in the classroom, that's a little bit of the secret sauce. Yeah that has educators still pretty engaged in meaningful work where they're not leaving. Yeah. Um, I, do you have any thoughts on that? That's, I, that's a really interesting idea. And I, you know, I, I sort of, I think about Finland too, right? Yeah. Where, where uh, you've always, we've elevated right. right. us. And I know we like to right. pick on Finland, but it's a big country and it's diversifying rapidly. There's all these other things we, we can't yeah. just dismiss it anyway. Um, I, but I think the idea of like elevating the profession where it becomes a profession, I certainly have seen that in, in Australia where the teachers, you hear them having banter and they're, they're quoting Hattie. They, they know yeah. the research. They, and they, I think they're treated like professionals and they respond in kind. Right. And it does, it is a great place. Uh, right. It is a great job, right? Great profession. So I was super encouraged by yeah. that because it sometimes feels like the exhaustion is pervasive and to see yeah. glimmers of, of hope and a whole country where it's in a, better situation or an entire continent in Australia's um, case where there's really good stuff going yeah. on and they're celebrating it. We need to do a better job of elevating that. I think so. Maybe, it's, maybe we're at a point where like, we, we know what we've tried. Let's try yeah. something different, right? right. That's, well, maybe we can, because we, you know, there's a lot of times there's pressure on like low performing schools to almost just focus only on just the rote aspects of learning. And, and like I said, direct instruction has its place, yeah. 
But what if kids don't have the with them? They're not engaged. They don't get the creation. Yeah. So maybe it's time for some of those schools that are struggling the most to say, well, we, we can't get worse, right? <laughs> so let's try something different. Right. And, and let's not do Einstein's definition of insanity. Right, yeah. right. No, yeah. well said. All right. So this is our lightning round. Okay. Uh, four questions for you. You can answer these in a word, phrase, or sentence. Uh, I am terrible at this I'm round. Not, yeah, I'm wordy. So we'll let me see, see how I do. We'll okay. see how we can do. All right. One word to describe schools in the United States right now. It probably is fatigue. I'm sorry, that's a Debbie yeah. Downer thing. Oh, we'll get positive towards that's the good. end. That's good. Okay. So, well, and this is your chance. One word to describe schools that you'd like to see in the next five years. Joyful, curious. All right. Hey. That was two. Sorry. That's all right. Joyful and curious. They go together. Yeah. And I think that's the way our brains are wired. So, <laughs> love that. And then best advice you have for educators right now? I think recognize this is a profession and it's a great career and there's it's it's worth your time and investment. And, and understand that there's, we know so much about how this can work and mm -hmm. dig into it, yeah. lean into it. Maybe that's my advice, lean into it. Yeah, I love that, love that. And then you've done a lot of writing mm -hmm. and I get this question sometimes, I've not written, I've not written as many books as you have. I write a lot of things, uh, peer review that a few people read <laughs> and I spend a lot of time on, but uh, I don't get a lot of questions about peer review, but I do sometimes get questions about, I'm an educator and yep. I really want to write something. Do you have any advice for educators who have good thoughts that they want to share and, you know, a best avenue, and you can take more than a sentence on this, but any advice for people that really want to write and do some of the things that you've been able to do? It's probably just write something. I mean, just yeah. start writing blog, um, get your, you know, maybe it's the old adage. I don't know what I think until I see what I've written. Yeah, I think I've been able good. to crystallize a lot of ideas through writing. Mm -hmm. um, I've written a lot of garbage too. So like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's the 10,000 hours of practice thing. You'd have to just get, uh, exercise that muscle and put some things out there, get some response from your colleagues, do a blog, do, yes. I, that's what I would say. And then the blog, three blogs turned into an article. Now, also, yeah. maybe not, now you're published in Kaplan or Ed Leadership, yeah. right? Yeah. And then eventually someone's going to go, hey, there's a book here. So I think yeah. just keep building up. From, yeah. Just take your ideas, put them on paper. No, that's, that's well, I guess we're not paper these days. Put yeah. them on the website. Put them somewhere yeah. out in the, in the ether. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Brian, really appreciate the work you do. Appreciate McCrell. Appreciate the books you've published and appreciate your friendship with Baylor yeah. and the Center for School Leadership. So thanks for your time. I was happy to be back here. John's great meeting you too. We're chatting with you at length now too. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. I really love where we ended that conversation with, we really want to move schools from being fatigued to being the joyfully curious places that is what drew us all into education and what draws our students in to something more as they become all they are created to be. Joyful, curious places are exactly what we want in the profession that makes all others possible. So here's to you having a great week of curiosity and joy that overcomes the fatigue and exhaustion that so many people are feeling. When we feel that curiosity and joy, that's what gets us up in the morning and that's what gives us the love and grace and peace and mercy to do the work that we're called to. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership.